Amen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing The Most Happy Fella. Hey, I'm the most happy fella in the whole Napa Valley. In the whole Napa Valley, the most happy man is me. Look at my Rosabella. Look at my Rosabella. She was a send me her photograph. And she was asking me for mine. You wait and you see. She gonna marry me. But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. I have a bit of advice for everyone. Benny, you yourself included. Hello, welcome. Thank you again, Benny. You know, this actually applies because you were just very recently training to be in the position that you are in now, right? Yes. And Benny, when you were training, uh, what, is it safe to say that you had a few questions along the road? You know, you're here now, but you wouldn't have been able to really feel comfortable in position if if you didn't feel comfortable asking questions. And that's the theme of this opening segment, asking questions. The advice I give to you, the listener, is if you are confused about something, be it a task or a situation or the expectations that other people put on you, ask questions. Yeah, a lot of people say to children, you know, if you don't understand something, ask questions. You're a small child. You're still growing, learning. You're not, you're, you can't be expected to know everything. And yet, there are some adults who expect other adults to know everything. Some adults have a sink or swim attitude when it comes to life. They push other adults into situations and they say, figure it out. You're an adult. I don't have time for questions. If you are in a position where you are an underling, that's sort of a negative term, but if you're if you're a subordinate to someone, especially if you're a subordinate to someone, if you have questions, ask them, and if they are not answered to your satisfaction, you ask them again, you ask them in different ways, and you do not let you hold those people hostage. You pin them to the ground and you ask as many questions as you need for you to feel comfortable in your position. Because we cannot do things, things, catch-all term, we cannot do the things in life that we need to do well if we don't ask questions first. So that's just my general subtweet. <laughs> <laughs> That's my general subtweet for this opening segment. Benny, thank you. You asked a lot of questions, a lot of really good questions, and some of them you had to repeat. Yes, because maybe you took down notes, but maybe you... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you have to ask the question again, if you need expansions on the original answers, those... It's not wrong to expect that or want that. You are... You're acting in your own best interest. Self-preservation, yes? We are all just trying to survive. We are, at the end of the day, cave people, lumbering our way through the dangers, the perils of this world. And we, <laughs> it's the scientific method. It's what the scientific method is based on, asking questions, posing hypotheses. So I'm a little ant, if you can't tell. Oh, I'm just gonna cool down. I forget what that, <laughs> didn't we have some sort of mantra or phrase? We were talking about a certain show and there was a certain mantra or phrase that I that I told 
people to say several. Oh, yeah, I remember now. Casper the Friendly Musical. Oh, thank goodness I remembered. <laughs> See, one must ask questions of oneself sometimes, yes? Casper the Friendly Musical, Casper the Friendly Musical, Casper the Friendly Musical. I feel better now. Let's get the show facts for this week's subject. Show me the show facts! The Most Happy Fellow was a 1957 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on May 3rd, 1956 at the Imperial Theater before transferring to the Broadway Theater in October 1957. It ultimately ran for 676 performances. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, who were investors in the original production, incorporated it into the Season 6, Episode 22 episode of I Love Lucy, which is known as Lucy's Night in Town. And in that episode, Fred jokes about how the title of the show which is, of course, the most happy fella, couldn't possibly reference a man who is married because, well, presumably, Fred hates his own wife, Ethel. Hilarious! Oh, how we loved Lucy back in the day. Book, music, and lyrics were all written by Frank Lesser. Uh, the show is based on the 1924 Pulitzer Prize-winning Broadway play They Knew What They Wanted by Sidney Howard, which had already been adapted into three films, The Secret Hour in 1928, A Lady to Love in 1930, and they knew what they wanted in 1940. And they say Hollywood is obsessed with remakes now. Oh, well, how ironic. Lesser spent four years adapting the play after a friend suggested it would make for a good musical, but most of the play's original themes, which touched on issues of politics, labor, and religion, were discarded by Lesser in favor of a simpler love story. More on that story in a bit, of course. The director was Joseph Anthony, but according to the internet Broadway database, he did not really get an official directed by credit, he got a staged by credit. Staged by credit. Articulation, Jonathan, that's key when podcasting! The musical director of the original Broadway production of The Most Happy Fella was Herbert Green. The choreographer was Dania Krupska. The scenic design was Joe Melsner. The lighting design was Joe Melsner. The sound design? N.A. No sound design credit on IBDB. We do have a costume design credit, though, and it's a great name, one, one name. This person went by one name, Motley. M-O-T-L-E-Y, fantastic, Madonna, Beyonce, Motley. I looked at Motley's overall resume on the IBDB, and Motley has over 70 scenic and costume design credits. Fantastic. Motley, where's your book? I gotta have a book all about Motley. Please and thank you. Peas and carrots, thank you very much. The original Broadway cast of The Most Happy Fella included Joe Sullivan, Richard Torigi, Rob Robert Weed, Susan Johnson, Shorty Long, Mona Polly, Zena Bethune, Rico Froelich, Froelich, Freilich, John Henson, Art Lund, Arthur Robin, Reuben, sorry, huh, Reuben, Arthur Reuben, and Christopher Snell. Tony Nods, the show was nominated for Best Musical, Best Actor in a Musical, Robert Weed, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Joe Sullivan, Best Choreography, Dania Krupska, Best Conductor and Musical Director, this must be an old school award that we no longer give out, I assume. Best Conductor and Musical Director, the nominee was Herbert Green, and 
Best Direction went to Joseph Anthony. But again, that's another nomination. No awards at the end of the day. So six nominations total, zero awards. Very surprising to me, the musical man. Let's talk about the plot. The plot is divided into not one, not two, but three acts. So why don't we just, you know what? Let's start with act one. I think that would make more sense than starting with, let's say, act two. Or mm, dare I say, act three? Nah, that would be crazy. Let's start with act one. The year is 1927, and the place is San Francisco. Amy, a waitress at the Golden Gate restaurant, fends off the advances of an obnoxious cashier, shoo shoo, while commiserating with her friend and co-worker Cleo. While cleaning up the restaurant, Amy finds one of her customers has left a note attached to a genuine amethyst tie pin. The note expresses love for Amy and requests that she write to him at the writer's <laughs> that she write to the writer at his home in Napa, California. The writer lives in Napa, California. He's saying to Amy, write to me, send me a postcard, please, my beautiful Rosabella. That's the term that the writer uses. Uh, when referencing Amy, he calls her Rosabella in the letter. He says, write to me, write to me. Cleo is skeptical, but Amy decides to take a chance as the correspondence could lead to something special. Four months later, a mailman delivers Amy's latest letter to to Tony Esposito, an elderly, uh, I say elderly, but I get the sense the character is supposed to be in his mid to late 50s at the most, maybe 60s, not quite sure. So uh, Tony Esposito, he's an an, an elderly, uh, maybe late middle-aged Italian immigrant who runs a successful grape farm. The letter includes a photo of Amy, and when his friends get a look at Rosabella, they are overjoyed by his good fortune. Tony's sister, however, disapproves of the courtship completely, having promised their dying mother to always look out for Tony, whom she believes is old and and unattractive and stupid. She pleads with him to give up the affair before he's humiliated. And she says those things to his face, by the way. She says, you are old and you are unattractive and you are stupid. No one would want you. I'm supposed to protect you. Stop this. So all of this naysaying sinks into Tony's soul. The doubt sinks in. The fear sinks in. As he prepares to have his own photo taken, Amy has requested that, you know, Tony send his picture in exchange for hers. But luck strikes when Tony's foreman, a handsome young man named Joe, announces he will soon be leaving town for greener pastures. Tony lies to Joe, saying he would like a photo of the foreman to remember him by, and Joe obliges without a, without a second thought. Without a second thought, he, he, he says, sure, I'll let you take my photo, you big weirdo. Tony sends the photo of Joe to Amy, along with a proposal of marriage, convinced she would reject him out of hand if she ever knew what he really looked like. In other words, Tony is pulling a straight-up 1920s catfish con. A few weeks pass, and Amy is due to arrive in Napa at any moment. Tony, having planned a huge welcoming party for his future bride, is stricken with panic when he discovers Joe is still in town and plans on attending the shindig. Oh, goodness! Tony sets off for the bus station, but never arrives, and a confused Amy is brought into town by the mailman. She encounters Joe, and assuming he is Tony, begins to question his lack of affection for her. What's with this guy? We've been writing, we've been sending each other postcards, lettuce, but he's not being affectionate 
towards me. It's only when Amy uses Tony's name that Joe realizes what has happened. The situation amuses him, but horrifies Amy, and she decides to return to San Francisco immediately. It is in this same moment Tony is carried into town, having flipped his truck in a terrible accident while on his way to the bus station. Fearing he'll die, Tony begs Amy to follow through on their marriage, and though she agrees, she can't help but worry what the old man might expect of her. Joe, resigned to the fact he'll have to, you know, stay on as foreman while Tony recuperates, attempts to comfort Amy, and they wind up having sex! End of Act 1. Act 2. It's one week later. Joe and Amy, regretting their decision to sleep together, are now thoroughly in the dumps. Tony has been resigned to a wheelchair and is eager to regain his health as soon as possible. At the behest of his doctor, he apologizes to Amy for having lied to her and requests a second chance, a fresh start. Amy agrees, and a cautious but genial bond is formed while she teaches her husband a few English phrases. The lesson is interrupted by the arrival of Cleo, who has been hired by Tony to work on the farm, so Amy will have a friend by her side. This delights Amy, who comes to accept her husband as a good and kind man. Cleo is not a fan of Tony's sister, Marie, who has never stopped complaining about her brother's relationship, but Cleo does take a liking to a farmhand named Herman. They quickly connect upon realizing they're both from Dallas, but Cleo is troubled by Herman's unflinching optimism and appreciation for all people, even the people that treat him like shit. It often results in his being pushed around by a specific jerk named Pasquale, and Cleo encourages Herman to stand up for himself. Marie manages to poison the well once more when she explains to her brother that life is meant to be lived by the young as the old are inevitably forgotten. Look, Marie is crazy and awful. I I get she's driven by deep loneliness, but her need to control Tony is unhealthy and bizarre. At one point, she sings about how no one can love you like I love you, and that's that's not something a sister should ever say to her brother. Stop it, Marie. Amy tells Cleo she has genuinely fallen for Tony. She is in love with Tony at this point, but believes they have fallen into a routine where he treats her like a child. Cleo encourages Amy to lay all of her cards on the table, and when she does, when Amy says to Tony, I am a woman, I'm a woman, you yeah, maniac, I'm your wife, and I love you now, I love you, so kiss me, you big galoot. Tony is ecstatic. He decides to remount the party that was canceled near the end of Act 1, you know, considering he was in that horrific truck accident, and while dancing, Amy suddenly faints. Tony's doctor informs Amy she is pregnant, Tony is not in the room at this point, That that's key, that's crucial to know. This fills Amy with shame as she knows Joe is the father. She chooses to keep the pregnancy a secret for the time being, and Act 2 comes to an end as Tony describes his happy life to the spirit of his mother. Not literally. I don't mean to say her spirit is on stage with him. It's not that kind of show. No ghosts! Act 3. A few days have passed. And Tony is planning yet another party to celebrate his marriage. Lots of parties in this show. Cleo tells Herman she and Amy may soon have to leave town, considering Amy's pregnancy. And this is a confession that seems to unfaze Herman, the unflappable farmhand. This drives Cleo up a wall, as she is convinced Herman will never have the kind of passion it takes to fight for what he wants. When Amy eventually reveals to Tony she is pregnant and Joe is the father of her child, Tony rejects her in a fit of anger. 
Amy and Cleo make their way to the bus station so they can return to San Francisco when Tony learns that Joe has also left for the bus station with a box of candy. Joe has a box of candy and he's going to the bus station? That's where my Amy, my Rosabella, is going. He assumes Amy has lied to him once more. Ah, uh, she's running off with Joe. That candy can only mean one thing. <laughs> candy equals liaisons. In truth, if I may say, if you could just shut up for a fucking second. In truth, Joe tells his old co-workers at the bus station, they're all saying goodbye to him, goodbye, Joe, and he tells his co-workers he's moving to Santa Fe and open up a restaurant. No, he's not going to open up a restaurant in Santa Fe, but the candy is meant to be given to Tony and Amy as a goodbye present. He gives the candy to his co-workers. It's very weird. He says, here, take this candy. I could have left it in town with someone, but here, you take it all the way back. I'm sure it won't be melted by the time you get back into town, but this is, this is a goodbye present for Tony and Amy, so take this candy. Joe leaves. He leaves town mere moments before Tony appears at the station with a pistol. Dun-dun-dun. The old man realizes his fury will only lead to ruin, and he vows to find and cherish his Rosabella no matter what has happened in the past. Upon hearing this declaration, Marie snaps and rips Tony's cane from his grasp, determined to end her brother's marriage once and for all. Cleo attacks Marie, and Pasquale intervenes, which leads Herman to punch Pasquale right in the kisser. This pleases Cleo to no end, and she gleefully embraces the newly confident Herman. When Tony and Amy reunite, they come to terms with how their entire relationship has been founded on a desperate desire to avoid shame and embarrassment. But they do love each other and wish to stay together, and so they choose to raise Amy's child as if it were Tony's while vowing to never again act out of fear. A happy ending has finally been achieved for the happy fella and his Rosabella. Huzzah, I say. When I first learned... Well, uh, you ever noticed? When I first learned we would be talking about The Most Happy Fella this week, I couldn't help but confuse it momentarily with a show I was slightly more familiar with, that being the 1989 very minor Stephen Schwartz musical, The Baker's Wife. All apologies to gigantic stands of The Baker's Wife. And, you know, who can blame me for confusing the two? The artwork for their respective cast albums are surprisingly similar, utilizing a picture book illustration style to, de- <laughs> to depict rotund, love-struck gentlemen, and the plot of The Baker's Wife concerns a young woman, her much older husband, and an affair with a younger man she comes to regret. Now, I once attended a highly simplified staging of The Baker's Wife, and I will say this much, it is no happy fella, not by a long shot. What I recall most vividly from that staging is how the actor who played The Baker, you know, the, the, the titular role of The Baker, well, I believe the titular role would be The Baker's Wife, but you get what I'm saying. So the actor who played The Baker, he, uh, he, he... <laughs> He wore a black cloth bag. You know, it's something you put marbles in. So he had this black cloth bag over one hand, and this was meant to indicate he was holding a cat in his arms. Uh, some minor, minor, minor puppetry work, I guess is, I guess is how you could describe it. And he, he made the bag move to give it some semblance of life. It's a cat. Remember, he's supposed to be holding a cat. And he called the cat in the script. He's holding this cat and he calls the cat a whore because the cat is a metaphor for his unfaithful wife. You see, uh, what I'm trying to say is the baker's wife is lame and I would not recommend tracking it down. I apologize again to the big baker's wife stands out there. I'm sure there are three of you. For the purposes of 
this week's episode, I listened to the 1956 original Broadway cast album. Now, whereas most cast albums produced at the time provided truncated versions of their scores, the Happy Fellow recording is a massive three LP affair that preserves the score in its entirety, save a few lines of dialogue. It's an absolute beast, and I wound up listening to each act over the course of three days. I highly recommend sitting down with this album as the score is beautiful and the vocal performances are guaranteed to knock you into next week. You can also hear other cast members moving or coughing in the background, which is great, as it makes you feel as if you're in the studio right alongside them. It's an immersive treat. I also watched the 1992 Tony Awards performance. This is a Broadway revival that's being represented in this clip on YouTube, and they are performing the number Happy to Make Your Acquaintance. I watched this clip before settling in with the OBC album and was instantly charmed. I thought to myself, well, this show looks positively delightful and it's casting a spell on me. Spiro Malice, Sophie Hayden, Liz Larson, thank you for this performance as it left a big old smile on my face. The 92 revival has its own cast recording, and I tried giving it a go via Spotify, but here's the thing. They reduce Lesser's rich, lush orchestrations down to a single piano. I don't know if this choice came down to a matter of artistic preference or limited budget, but the Happy Fellas score was not meant to sound as if it was being beaten out by a guy in an old-timey saloon. Skip it. Segwaying oh so smoothly into our score deconstruction, let's talk about, well, let's talk about this. Well, why not? When The Most Happy Fella first premiered in 1956, there were a lot of people who had trouble accepting it as a traditional musical. For example, Brooks Atkinson of the New York Times went out of his way to write that lesser, quote, has now come about as close to opera as the rules of Broadway permit, quote, I've read that quote a few times, and I'm still not sure what to make of it, as these mysterious rules of Broadway don't actually exist. But the question remains, is Happy Fella more of a musical or an opera? The answer is, of course, a little of column A, a little of column B, which I think Lesser himself would have accepted to quote him directly, quote, I may give the impression this show has operatic tendencies. If people feel that way, fine. Actually, all it has is a great frequency of songs. It's a musical with music. Quote, He ain't kidding. Happy Fella is packed to the gills with song and dance and is only occasionally interrupted by patches of spoken dialogue. And while the vocalists frequently achieve the kind of stratospheric heights one would hear in a traditional opera, I would argue what they are singing about and how the characters choose to express themselves is squarely rooted in the realm of musical theater, not opera. Operas are meditative. They really sit in and stretch out emotional phrases they're not in any hurry to move on from them. But the songwriting in Happy Fella doesn't operate like that. It's conversational, and thus has the ability to be fractured, moving in any number of directions at a consistently speedy clip. This speaks to a decidedly modern sensibility, and so I would ultimately argue that Happy Fella is more musical than opera. I say this as someone who has no real context for opera. Look, here are the operas that I can bring to mind right off the top of my head. Uh, the Ring Cycle, that's one, I'm sure. Carmen, The King of the Lizards, Dutch Boy, Dutch Boy, Where Have You Been? A Goat for Margaret. Those are the only operas I know. Hey, this is the musical man, not the opera man, am I right? All right. Opera man is a classic Adam Sandler character from the golden halcyon days of Saturday Night Live. What would he have to say about all of this? He would probably say, bellissimo. The world may never know. 
Ah, but speaking of the sheer amount of music in this week's subject, I want to make it clear how our crash course is going to be even Pete Holmes crashier than usual this week, because we can't talk about each of the 54 tracks featured on the OBC album. You understand, right? That's so many tracks. I don't have that kind of time. Do you? Of course not. Your commute's not that long. So let's talk about some of the best tracks. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little... How is this going to work? Let's just give you a nice little sampling of Ooh, my feet, I know how it is, and I don't know nothing about you. Let's just get those all together, Benny. Can we we create a little little nice trio of clips there? Let's get that now. Ooh, my feet, my poor, poor feet. Better your life a waitress earns her pay. I've been on my feet, my poor, poor feet, all day long today. toes, my poor, poor toes. How can I give the service with a smile? When I'm on my toes, my poor, poor toes. Mile after mile after mile after mile after mile. Cleo, why do you think a customer left me? I know how it is. Don't tell me million crumbs and a gravy spot teaspoon stuck in the mustard pot napkin on the floor ashes in the cup and one Canadian dime so you pick it up with the seven million crumbs it's jewelry he left me a piece of jewelry it's a man's tie pin looks like amethyst must be glass. What'd he look like? I don't remember anybody. Didn't you see him? Didn't he talk to you? No. Tonight the place was so busy, and you know me. I never notice a face or listen to a voice. I just hand him the menu. Hey, there's some writing on it. It's a mash note in kind of a funny, broken English. Listen to what he says. I don't know. you ever done I don't know nothing about you I don't want to know I don't gotta know what I see is kind of young lady I want to get married let me see that I don't know nothing about you waving or whatever what I see is kind Great France with my sister, RFD 11, Napa Valley. Oh, I forget to tell you, my name is Antonio Esposito. Oh, bellissimo. Thank you so much, Benny. This entire opening sequence at the Golden Gate restaurant is wonderful. I am all about Cleo, this this endearingly acerbic, been-around-the-block gal who sticks by Amy's side through thick and thin. What a great role. Susan Johnson is knocking it out of the park here. And I especially enjoy the bit where she reviews Tony's letter. That's an old-school gag I didn't even 
even know I missed, but I missed it. Set up, you read a letter out loud. Punchline, I read it out loud myself because I can't believe my ears, only I read it all fast and mumbled. That's funny. It's just, it's just very funny, basic cave people humor, and I really like it. Joe Sullivan is a treat from the get-go as well, lending the role of Amy a light sigh that barely masks her desire for a bigger, more stirring life. By the end of this sequence, I wanted only the best for these two characters, as I was totally on their side. Lesser, you did it in such limited, such a limited amount of time. You made me care. You beautiful bastard. You did the work. All right, now for our next selection. Let's see. Let's hop around. Let's go to wanting to be wanted slash somebody somewhere. Uh, take it away, Betty. Thank you, Betty. Thank you, thank you. Now, most I want songs begin with a character having fully crystallized what it is they're searching for in this world. But with wanting to be wanted and somebody somewhere, Amy is working it out in real time. She's turning over this idea of wanting to be wanted, needing to be needed, and it strikes her out of the blue. To quote her directly, she says, that's what it is. That's what it is. She, like Tony, wants so badly to be noticed, she has hit upon this, 
She wants so badly for someone to cut through the trivial and ask for a real, lasting commitment. Ironically, Tony and Amy's initial correspondence winds up being an era of honesty in their relationship that comes to an end once they exchange photos. Between that exchange and their third act happy ending lies a wide gulf. But for now, as Amy holds Tony's first letter, they exist within a purely good moment. In other words, I love this combo of songs. Lesser's packing a lot into a two-and-a-half-minute track, and I can't help but marvel at his level of artistic economy, that what he achieves in so limited an amount of time. It's just fantastic. All right, Johnson, you better pay the gas and light. Sullivan, that's me. You're here, thank the Lord. Sullivan, you're breaking my back with Montgomery Ward. Van Pelt, your sister had a baby girl. Green, Herbie Green, say who's Pearl? Esposito. Di canone. Che bella faccia! What did she write you? What did she write you? What did she write you? Hey, I'm the most happy fella! All right, so this is a combination known as Oh, Where's the Postman? slash The Most Happy Felia. It's Felia, it's the titular song. Felia, goodness gracious. Jonathan, you know what? Let's just take a break for a second. I am parched. I need something that's broiling hot. I'm going to take a sip of 5678 coffee. Benny, will you raise your mug as well? Thank you. Thank you. Ah, yes. Broiling hot like molten lava. That's just how I like it. Benny's giving me the thumbs up. We are ready to keep going now that we are refreshed with that scalding hot coffee. All right, so. Ah, Oh, where's the postman slash the most happy fella? Now, there is a convention of old school musical theater. Come a little closer. I'm going to tell you something. Come a little closer. Come a little closer. Come a little closer. There's a convention of old school musical theater I have discovered I cannot get enough of. You know what it is? It's the enormous ensemble sings about a thing. That thing could be an event. A place or a person, a fucking Wells Fargo wagon, but everyone is similarly excited as hell by its arrival. Happy Fella trots out examples of this convention whenever possible, and that trend starts here. Everyone is like, holy shit, the mail! Let's sing about the mail! Yes, please, never stop singing about the mail. And then they're like, a letter for Tony! We know Tony! Let's all sing about Tony's mail-order love affair! There's nothing that couldn't whip this group into a four-part harmony frenzy. Tony and the company have an infectious rapport here. They're, they're so supportive of Tony's romantic aspirations, and everyone appears to be having a kick-ass time. Why aren't I a grape farmer in Napa, California in the 1950s? Why can't I live in the imperfect but ebullient world of a musical? Whole towns should be celebrating my accomplishments. Stupid real towns not singing about shit all. This is why people escape to the cozy embrace of the theater real town. Standing on the corner, watching all the girls go by. Standing on the corner, watching all the girls go by. Brother, you don't know a nice 
lesser occupation. Matter of fact, neither do I. Then standing on the corner, watching all the girls, watching all the girls, watching all the girls go by. Standing on the corner sounds very, very familiar to me, but I am not clear on when or in what context I would have heard it before this week. Maybe I caught that episode of I Love Lucy when I was a kid. I know the song is featured in that episode. Maybe I encountered this Broadway cast album when I was in college, and that memory has become little more than an ember in the dark caverns of my fractured mind. Who knows? But this song is a straight-up pip, even if the content is a little... (laughs) It's a little disconcerting in 2019. There's a lot of talk about, hey, you can't blame me for giving a girl the eye. (laughs) Calm down, Herman. Shut up. I want to like you, Herman. This song sounds free and easy, but there are some subjects that just do not translate. Yeah, you know, like leering. (laughs) The subject of leering doesn't really translate in 2019. You know what the barbershop quartet sang about in the music, man? Ice cream. Ice cream. Now that's a subject we can all get behind. Cool off with some ice cream, Herman, you bright-eyed bushy-tailed lech like a perfumed woman the wind blows in the bunkhouse like a perfumed woman smelling of where she's been smelling of Oregon cherry Maybe Texas avocado Or maybe Arizona sugar beet The wind blows in And she sings to me Goodness gracious. Okay, so this song is known as Joey, 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 and goddamn does that song have a musk. I would go to bed with Art Lund in the role of Joe in a heartbeat, no questions asked. He's talking about how the women in his life smell like Oregon cherries, Texas avocado, and Arizona sugar beets. That shit got my ears pricked. And when he hits the chorus, it's like I'm being bathed in deep purples and bruised blues, and I'm in a dark cavern with the one and only Art Lund. Art Lund, you throaty crooner son of a son of a gun! 
You get over here. Get out of my time machine and into my mouth. I bet you taste like sugar beets. You don't really get the restless, possibly shirtless farmhand archetypes trolling through your musicals nowadays, but we should. We should. They cause all kinds of trouble. Very good fire starters, those restless farmhands. In all seriousness, can we get serious for a second? What I respect about Joe as a character is how he is a wanderer, but he's not a brute. He's not an asshole. He makes mistakes, but he regrets those mistakes and doesn't repeat them, which is key. Having sex with Amy on the night of her marriage to Tony? Uh, yes, bad idea. Obviously bad. Bad idea. No good. Don't do it again. I don't mean to give Joe too much credit, but Lesser could have easily styled this character as a, you know, horny, one-dimensional villain. Instead, Joe is as weird a mix of good and bad instincts as everyone else in the show. He's a fuck-up, but I think for the most part, he's doing his best. Now do your best in this mouth, Joe, a.k.a. Art Lunt. Let's talk about Sposalizio, shall we? Sposalizio. Here we have another example of the company coming out in full force in support of a thing. This time it's the Sposalizio, the behemoth banger of a party Tony has decided to throw in Amy's arm. <laughs> to throw in Amy's honor, I should say. The company can't get enough of it. Look at the lights, look at the food, this shit is popping. Her booty's juicy. At this point, I'm not even kidding. I want the world to work in such a way that everyone can come together and celebrate a thing. I don't care what it is. We have to sing about a thing. It can be the postal workers. It can be a highly specific type of party. But we need to lock in on whatever that thing is, sing about it, and let the endorphins flow. If you don't want to kick up dirt with these people after hearing Sposalizio, you are immobile. You cannot be moved, and I feel sorry for you, you big dum-dum. Yes, I know how you feel. Yes, you know how I feel. Well, don't you worry. I went through with it, didn't I? I said I'd marry him. Well, I married him. And you'll never be sorry. Take your hands off You of know me. I had nothing to do with that photograph. No, but you're laughing about it. No, kid, no. Inside, you're laughing how I got myself stuck with it. Take your hands off of me. Tony sure is a fine fellow. Leave me alone. With the strength of a giant. He's an old man, an old man. All of a same. I don't want him leave.
appreciate how during this number, Don't Cry, serious attention is paid to the horror Amy feels in the wake of having married Tony. It was a snap decision based purely on instinct, but she has no clue how it's going to pan out for her. If Tony could lie when it comes to his photo, what else could he be hiding? It's a fair question. And yes, the townspeople are very nice to Amy, but how does that help her when she is steeped in existential dread? Don't Cry as a Song is technically on the shoulders of Joe, but it's Amy's interruptions, her ragged expressions of despair that really got to me. It is quite effective. We friends now, huh? We start all over again. I'm meet you for the first time. Hello? happy to make your acquaintance, since I've already made a fairly big deal about the effect the 1992 Tony's performance had on me. Ah, what the hell, let's make an even bigger deal about it. I found myself leaning in while watching that clip, you know? This isn't some splashy spectacle number with a hundred people on stage. This is all about character dynamics, very personal interactions. Two people who have had their confidence shaken and are now trying to determine what, if anything, they can build together. And I was all... Absolutely, tell me more. And when Cleo showed up, I was like, she seems fabulous, forget about it. It's all so clean and kind. There isn't a drop of sweat produced when it comes to drawing in the viewer. In a word, it's effortless. I mean, come on, there's an endless supply of Tony performances that strike up the band in an attempt to drum up ticket sales. But in 92, the most happy fella had the quiet temerity to trot out the equivalent of a refreshing mojito. And to that mojito, I say, gulp. Oh, Cleo, I gotta talk to you. I know I can talk to you. You're her friend and he's my brother. You understand we can talk to one another. Trouble is when the 
points regarding the song, I Don't Like This Dame. Point number one. Marie's voice fading into and blending with the bleat of a woodwind is that Peter and the Wolf stuff I love so much. People as instruments, yes. Point number two. Cleo delivering an extra spicy, extra thorny inner monologue, yes, to all of that as well. We should all have a Cleo in our corner ready to spring on the jerks who would dare to block our path to success. Hashtag Team Cleo moving on. Evening, ma'am. Would you mind saying that again? I said evening, ma'am. Evening, ma'am. Mr. You got away. Would you mind saying that again? I mean, friendly stay. Friendly stay. Sister, you got a way of saying friendly stay. That gives me the impression you're my kind. Would you mind saying crazy crystals? Crazy crystals. Would you mind saying Neiman Marcus? Neiman Marcus! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! You're from Big D! <laughs> I can guess by the way you drawl and the way you dress. You're from Big D. My oh yes! I mean Big D. Little A double L A S. And that spells Dallas. My darling, darling Dallas, gonna give. That you're from Big D. My oh yes. I mean Big D. Little A double L A. Big D. Little A double L A. Big D. Little A double L A. A lot of character-based games set up throughout The Most Happy Fella, and none of them manage to wear out their welcome, which is pretty astonishing. The parameters of a game are established, we run through two cycles of the game at most, and the show gracefully moves on before it loses our attention. In I Don't Like This Dame, the last song we were talking about, for example, the clear game there is Marie complains about Tony, Cleo pretends to empathize, and then we hear what Cleo's really thinking. That's the game. Other shows would have beaten this into the ground, but have Happy fella isn't indulgent. Its get-in, get-out mentality also applies to Evening Ma'am and Big D. We could have Herman and Cleo run through a dozen more examples of why Dallas is great, or phrases that sound good when dipped in a Texas drawl, but why bother? Leave them wanting more. Don't pile it on until they're sick, seems to be the lesser motto. And of course, Big D is another example of the company coming out to sing about a thing. That's a place, you know, very much like Oklahoma. Now we're singing about Dallas, Texas, baby. Everyone loves Dallas. Ah, let's sing about it. And yes, before we move on, yes, 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 you heard right. The song, and there is a song in the show known as Big D. Get your giggles out now, you juvenile delinquents, you fucking little rascals. They're singing about how much they love the Big D. Har, har, har. You see, that's why you're in detention in the first place, you little hooligans, because you can't appreciate fine art without bringing filth into the mix. You drag it in is what you do. You drag it in like a cat. Well, we'll see who's giggling when you're all clapping erasers till the sun goes down. Now clap! Clap! 
see, Mama, I, I guess Marie's right. It's no use for me. Young people got to dance, dance, dance. Old people got to sit there and watch, watch, watch. With the make-believe smile in the eye Young people got to live, live, live Old people got to sit there and die repeat what you just heard because, oh goodness gracious, so I'm just going to repeat what you just heard. Young people got to dance, dance, dance. Old people got to sit there and watch, watch, watch. With the make-believe smile in their eye, young people got to live, live, live. Old people got to sit there and die. This is one of the best pieces of songwriting in the history of the form. I was floored when I heard this the first time around, and its impact hasn't lessened a bit with time. It causes me to reflect on my own age, my own state of being, as well as that of everyone around me. Will aging really cause me to feel this kind of heartache at a certain point? Will I be reduced to wearing a make-believe smile while crumbling on the inside? Witnessing, bearing witness to life, not being a participant in it? I can barely blink when I hear these lyrics come out of Tony's mouth. It's pure genius. Supposing I should have to say goodbye, darling. What would you say, darling? I'd say goodbye, darling. That's not what I mean. Supposing I just packed my bag and From wherever it was you went I'm gonna give you one more chance I may be leaving in a little while, darling How can you smile, darling? Smiling's my style, darling If I haven't made it clear, I'm a big fan of Herman and Cleo. They're quite funny to me as a couple. Cleo is an eternal pessimist who has, who she, you know, she has love to give and plenty of fire in her belly, while Herman is an eternal optimist who has far too much love in his heart and zero fire in his belly. They're quite a pair of opposites as evidenced here in this number, Goodbye, Darlin'. I think what I like the most is how Herman never knows what Cleo is really talking about, no matter how plainly she's 
weeks. That's yet another rock-solid game, what can I say? And once again, Lester leaves me wanting more of that comedic goodness. Lester says to me, you like this game? Well, tough. We're uh, moving on. We're blazing new trails. Oh, Lesser, you scrumptious tease. Do you summer night made me long for the days when I was in choir in middle and high school, which is a feeling I haven't experienced. Well, you know, <laughs> now that I think about it, I, I, I never much enjoyed being in choir, if, I, if I'm going to be brutally honest with myself. The point is, uh, this song tricked me. It wanted me. It, it, it led me to think that I wanted to be, that I could be in a choir again, despite the fact that I've never known how to, how to read music throughout my entire life. And the point is that I would like to hear this song maybe delivered uh, in a spooky chamber choir concert context in a nearly dark room. I, apparently I'm putting myself in a horror film. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Uh, the only light in the room, by the way, would be produced by candles and everyone would be dressed in black. Ooh, sing to me, my summer angels of music. Sing to me. I want to bring up the track Tell Tony and Rosabella Goodbye for me. Uh, and I only bring it up because it's not this like big song. It's mainly just a very conversational little, it's a little snippet from this otherwise enormous show. And I just want to bring up this very <laughs> specific moment that Tony has. Uh, he's talking to some of his employees from the Great Farm, and enough set up, I just, uh, it's hilarious unintentionally so, but I find it very funny in an endearing way. So enough set up from me. Uh, let, let's take it away, Benny. Go for it. Hey, there's the boss. Look. Hey, what's the matter with him? Where's Joe? Just left a minute ago. Yeah, he just went off on the southbound train. Who else was to go? We didn't see nobody but Joe. He left you and the missus a message. Me and the missus? Yeah, he said to tell you that it smelled like the time he ought to be on his lonesome way. Yeah, that's the way he told us. Uh, he left this for the both of you. What's the matter? Uh, boss, what are you doing on your feet? Way down here, away from the house. Don't you want the candy? Uh, we don't eat that kind of candy. <laughs> That's so fucking funny to me. Don't he just saying the phrase, we don't eat that kind of candy. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Dramatic musical sting. He doesn't eat that kind of candy. <laughs> it's very funny. The candy gets the biggest sting maybe in the entire show. No, that candy. <laughs> you don't understand. That's not the kind of candy we eat. Tony's final monologue is fantastic and totally sold me on the arc of the show. Should we listen to the monologue in its entirety? Yes, we should. Take it away. It's going to be Tony's Bambino. We tell everybody he's Tony's Bambino. And then everybody say, 
Tony's so goddamn young and strong, he's break all his bones and having baby just the same. Who's gonna know? Who? You'll know. You'll know and you'll hate me. And you'll hate the baby. I'm scared. Don't you be scared, Carissima. It's bad to get scared. Me, Tony, I was scared one night last springtime. That night I was scared to drive down the station to meet my Rosabella. I was scared I'm too old and I'm a talk funny. Then I drive a truck too fast and have accident. Maybe that the same night, that same night last springtime, maybe you got scared and have accident too. Before that, I was all the time scared. I was so scared I send you wrong a fella's pitch. Pitchy, young, handsome fella. That first time I see you in the restaurant in the Frisco, I should have no left, no sneaky little note on the bill of fare. I should have knew what I wanted and say what I wanted. And now, tonight, we start all over. Robert Weed makes me, makes what could be, I should say, he makes what could be a really problematic, creepy, troubling character into someone you can't help but like. That's the mission with Tony. You have to make him incredibly likable, incredibly charming and endearing, despite the mistakes that he makes, despite the decisions that he makes. And so to those who play Tony in future productions, I would say pay close attention to what Weed is doing here on this album. Pay attention to his performance and figure out for yourself what works works so well. I can't do the work for you. You've been cast as Tony, not me. I would ever be cast as Tony in a million years. Are you kidding me? Have fun with it, but I can't be your acting coach. Shut up! Tony and Amy are not your typical musical theater leads. That much we should know by now. They routinely act not out of self-interest, but self-preservation, assuming the world will laugh at them if their mistakes and true natures are brought to light. Tony doesn't want anyone to think he's old and healthy and stupid, and Amy doesn't want anyone to think she's a fool. So what do they do? Lie to save face, lash out at the worst possible moment, mourn in suffocating silence instead of airing their dirty laundry once and for all. These, these are great characters. And I'm glad that despite their weird, rocky past, their love is viewed as something that should be nurtured and cherished. And that's our deconstruction of the score. Rah, rah, sis by say. Now we're going to hear a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. a night like any other. Oh, the fog. It, it wrapped around me like a lover. A lover that wanted to suffocate me, most like most like my last lover. Oh, oh Samantha. Oh, Samantha. Oh, she was a real humdinger. Oh, yeah, you should have seen her. She was like a, like a bowling alley, closed at nighttime, cold. Cold and unfeeling, filled with darkness, mysterious. I kept bumping around trying to figure her out. Oh, but it was impossible. And she also didn't like the fact that I was a detective. That's right, it's me, Detective Stone from City of Angels. You'll have to excuse me, I have a splitting goddamn headache hangover. And, uh, you know, this is this is just going to be me walking through my day. You know, I walked down the street the other day. 
I was walking down the street just the other day when a little dog came my way. And oh, this dog, I, I encountered this dog on a, a number of occasions. The dog's like a bowling alley, closed at night, confusing, odd, hairy, covered in foam. And the dog talks to me in my, in my more weaker moments. I had just come stumbling out of a interaction with Samantha. Oh, Samantha, you're like a bowling alley, closed at night, bashing your pins against me. Oh, she had great pins, Samantha did. Oh, she had great pins, and she would bash them against my face. And the dog said to me, what the hell is the matter with you? You got you got your red eyes. You got foam coming out of your mouth like me. You're like me, a bowling alley, closed at night. And I said, oh, my God, I've become my own metaphor. Dog, what can I do? And he said, you got to go down to the diner. You got to have a cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee. You got to get rid of this headache hangover. This is a story I'm telling you. And you got to understand, I told this dog, look, I'm on a case. I got to find a missing girl. She's been missing for 14 weeks. The only clue I have is this piss-stained piece of notebook paper that says the Yellow King on it. I got to find the Yellow King. And the dog said, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Ruff, ruff, ruff. Go down to the diner. Clear your head with a cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee. All will be revealed. And when I went into the diner, oh, I was like a bowling alley. Close tonight is what I'm saying to you. And there was, oh, there was this dame. Oh, baby. Oh, shabunga boonga. Her name was... Ramantha. Yeah, she looked a lot like Samantha. That's what I'm saying. It's a confusion. She looked a lot like Samantha except for red hair. She had brown hair. Weird brown hair. Brown like coffee. Coffee that she served to me with a smile that could have lit up the stars. If God, if God in his infinite wisdom blew out the stars like birthday candles. <clears throat> what I'm telling you right now is she would have made them. She would have made them light up with her smile. And she shoved a coffee into my face and she said, drink up, you asshole. So I drank it, and that's when everything came into clarity. I realized, oh, my God, it's Samantha's fraternal sister, Ramanda. How did I not make that connection? And that dog, that's my dog. Oh, my God, he's rabid. I got to take care of him. Five, six, seven, eight, coffee. It cleared my mind. It helped me figure everything out. I still can't find that little girl. Oh, that little girl. She's going to be the 75th victim of the Yellow King if I don't figure my shit out. Oh, I got to go, listeners. Oh, what I'm telling you right now. Oh, I being a detective. Sometimes you get your face smashed in by uh, uh, mugs. Sometimes your own dog bites you on the ass and you get rabies and you get foam coming out of your mouth. But that five, six, seven, eight coffee, you know what you can do with that? You can count on it, baby, bada, big bada, boom. This segment's getting longer. <laughs> it just seems like... Maybe we could be a little bit more uh, disciplined when it comes to cutting off some of these spokespeople. Not to say thank you, Detective Stone, for coming in. I don't normally comment on the spokespeople, but uh, uh, maybe that was a little bit of a rambling road we went down. Anyway, final thoughts regarding The Most Happy Fella. The Most Happy Fella is a hearty stew that conjures up many of its more talked-about predecessors. The rallying cry of the company brings to mind that of Carousel. The comical duo of Herman and Cleo evoke lesser zone guys and dolls, and we even get a healthy dose of psychosexual panic a la the aforementioned Oklahoma. At the same time, Happy Fella confidently stands on its own, serving up roles and emotional conundrums most shows wish
wish they could boast. It's a classic. What else can I say? We need to be championing this show a lot more. Now I gotta go see myself in the rest of Lesser's canon. Green Willow, How to Succeed in Business, Pleasures in Palaces, Where's Charlie, and... Uh, 1952 Danny Kaye film known as Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, sure. For you, Lesser, I'll try anything. Now, in 1957, My Fair Lady won the Tony Award for Best Musical, and the other nominees that year were Bells Are Ringing and Candide. Now, Bells Are Ringing I have seen in the past. It's a pretty lightweight comedy compared to the rest of this lot, but overall, this would appear to be a stellar season for standout productions. I'm gonna make a soft call for the time being and say Happy Fella should have won out over My Fair Lady, which a which is a somewhat musty fairy tale compared to this week's subject. My Fair Lady charms, Happy Fella resonates and sticks. Ladies' gender politics are somewhat exhausting after all these years, but the dynamics in Fella are brutal and tough and worth sifting through. You get it, I've made a case for myself. I've made myself clear. I'm a smart, articulate person. When it comes to ranking the show, I'm going to give the most happy Fella our number eight slot, right between Bring In Noise, Bring In Defunk at number seven, and Guys and Dolls at number nine. And when it comes to show-related ephemera, oh goodness gracious, did I find something stupid. I found a clip of Damien McGinty of Glee fame singing Standing on the Corner as part of Celtic Thunder's It's Entertainment concert. Yeah, I don't know what any of that means either, but let's get a clip of it anyway. Standing on the corner watching all the girls go by Standing on the corner watching all the girls go by Matter of fact, neither do I Man standing on the corner Watching all the girls, watching all the girls Watching all the girls If you don't remember Damien McGinty's brief turn on Glee, he played an Irish kid, and that was essentially his defining personality trait. Apparently that really carried with him throughout the rest of his career, because here he is as part of Celtic's, <laughs> Celtic Thunder's It's Entertainment Concert, whatever the fuck that is. You know what makes me uncomfortable? Watching a white kid sing tenor as he skulks about a garish set and stares at voiceless women while elderly white folk sing along from the audience. I guess it's true. Young people gotta sing, 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 and old people gotta sit there and mouth along because they know the song too, and they're not dead yet, damn it. I don't know, this kind of stinks. <laughs> when you reduce standing on the corner from a classy gazebo quartet to a single guy, you increase the creep factor fourfold. Did I mention McGinty is in a totally white outfit? White on white, singing to whites for the amusement of whites. Blah, blah. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator, I named after that classic Roger and Hammerstein show the ungodly horrors of the mischievous Miss Mimsy. Everyone ready? Then away we go. Ooh, okay, all right. 
right, okay. So I stepped off of the musical carousel, and the year is 1970. The show is the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical from 1970. It ran for 896 performances, and that show is none other than the Lauren Bacall vehicle. That's right. Applause! Yes, that's right. It's the all, it's the All About Eve adaptation known as Applause. Should we call it All About Eve? Now nah, let's call it Applause. Yeah. So that's what's going to be coming to your ears next week, my listeners, my fair musical minions. Oh, I haven't called you that in a while, have I? You're my musical minions, and don't argue with me about it. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. You can give one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you give one dollar a month, you will receive weekly verbal shoutouts. Let's do those shoutouts now, shall we? Thank you so much for donating each and every month. Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. If you donate a dollar a month, you will also gain access to special episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards and a review of the first trailer for the Cats film adaptation. Now, if you donate $3 a month, you will not only get what I described in the $1 tier, you will also get a musical shout-out in the style of a character or composer of your choosing. You let me know who you want to hear from, and then you will hear from them. If you donate $5 a month, not only will you get the $1 and $3 incentives, you're going to be able to stop the musical carousel, first of all, and by doing so, you're going to be able to dictate what show we discuss on the podcast. That's right. You'll also gain access to all 12 episodes of the first season of All I Ask of You, the advice show hosted by none other than the Phantom of the Opera. Now, you can also earn the right to stop the musical carousel. You know, I'm I'm the kind of guy that offers all kinds of deals. I'm trying to get the engagement with the show whipped up trying to whip up some engagement. So you can also earn the right to stop the musical carousel and tell me what I should discuss on the show by doing the following. Write a review via uh, via Apple Podcasts. Go to Apple Podcasts. Write a five-star review. The text in the review should read as follows. Miss Saigon, more like bless Saigon. If you do that, if you write a five-star review with that text and you reach out to me confirming that you did that shit, then you too will be able to stop the musical carousel you get it. Now, what happens if you donate $10 a month? Well, you get everything that I've already described in the $1, $3, and $5 tiers, but you also get access to The Snub Club, a special series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never, never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. We are in the month of September, and in the last, on the last Wednesday, I should say, of September, we'll be dropping, we'll be dropping our latest episode, which is going to be dedicated to It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Donations go toward the person of rare cast recordings, movie rentals, offsetting Podbean hosting costs. And if we ever get to the point where we're bringing in $100 or more in total monthly donations, that will result in my producing M3, The Movie Musical Man, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of musicals, movie musicals, that are tied by a common theme. Again, I have to give a shout-out to Apple Podcasts. Go there, write a five-star review. If we ever get to the point where 30 written five-star reviews have been produced by you, the dedicated list I will record a special episode about the Disney Descendants trilogy. So many offers out there. So many offers out there. We gotta cash in some of these checks. I'm writing checks. I'm throwing them out. You gotta, you gotta bring them back to me so they can be cashed, I do say. So come on, come on. I'm telling you, come on. Streaming options for the show include musicalmanpod.podbean.com and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod, and you can email me at musicalmanpod 
at gmail.com. Love getting emails, love getting questions, hot takes, opinions about anything and everything. So always feel free to write to me, and chances are that email will be read on the show. Thank you to Benny in the booth. Thank you to Alex Green for producing our beautiful logo. Thank you to Zach Little for producing our beautiful music. And thank you, Doorbell. Oh, no, not thank you, Doorbell. You know what the doorbell means. Yes, just when the fun is starting, comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night. the candy? Uh, we don't eat that kind of candy. <laughs>